Hey, welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and to trust Him more. To keep up with us or to get more information, visit CelebrationChurchLive.com. Celebration Church, you feeling alive this morning? Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Let's go. This side of the room. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Hey, if we have not had the privilege of meeting this morning, my name is Keenan Clark, and I am uh, one of the pastors here at Celebration Church, and it is my ridiculous privilege to get to bring the Word of God to you today. So I pray that you're ready. Um, in 2018, I went on this, this crazy trip. It was the trip of a lifetime, and I, I went on this trip to, to Israel. It was in an all-expenses-paid trip, five-star trip to Israel. And I'll be honest with you, growing up in church, I always imagined um, that when I finally got to go to the Holy Land, um, I would be, you know, I would be retired, and I would go with all of my old retired pastor, preacher, friends. But the Lord is like, no, you're going to 23. Okay, so in 2018, at 23 years of age, uh, I went to Israel. We went to all the spots. We went to everywhere you could possibly want to go in the Holy Land. Uh, we went to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's probably where I got the most emotional, shed a tear or two, at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we went to the, the Sea of Galilee. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not much of a seafood guy, but I ate the salmon at the Sea of Galilee, okay? I ate that salmon. We went on a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. No one tried to get out of the boat, thank God, okay? <laughs> no one felt that holy. And so we ended up you know, going to Capernaum where Jesus taught in multiple synagogues. We would read the passages of scripture that were taught in those literal synagogues. There's a synagogue that literally dates back to the time of Jesus. So no doubt I stood in a synagogue Jesus bodily preached in. It was an incredible moment. We went to the mountain of Beatitudes, where Jesus preached his most famous sermon. I took a cool picture sitting in the, sitting in the grass of the Mount of the Beatitudes. Uh, we ended up going to Jerusalem, went to Jerusalem. We went to the Wailing Wall. I said a prayer at the Wailing Wall. Uh, we went to Golgotha, what they believed to be the literal site of the hill of Golgotha, the hill of the skull where Jesus died. We even went and had communion at the garden tomb. It was incredible. And newsflash, he wasn't there. <laughs> Just so you know, I've seen him in my own eyes. He was not in there, okay? Went and had communion at the garden tomb. But one of the coolest places we went was a place called the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence this morning, uh, but just so we're all on the same playing field, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea due to the high level of salt in the water. And the reason there's such a high salt concentration in this water is because it has a lot of inlets, rivers pouring into it, but no outlets. The water pours in and just stays. So there's tons of salt in the Dead Sea. It's also the lowest place on earth. So I remember the Dead Sea Day came, we all jump on the bus, the tour bus that we had, and they're like, hey guys, few disclaimers, few little things for you to, uh, to note, a few little tidbits. All right, the Dead Sea has a lot of salt in it, so you're gonna be more buoyant than you have ever been in any other body of water. You are going to just naturally float. And I was like, this sounds incredible. I'd only have like been to the Frio River, you know, I floated the Frio, but I'd never floated the Dead Sea, okay? I couldn't wait. And then they said this, word to the wise, 
do not get any of the water in your eyes. Don't get the water in your eyes because of how much salt is in there. It will burn like you would not believe. And I took this advice serious. Okay, I was like, I am not going underwater. I am not, like literally, it's not happening. I do not want this water in my eyes. So I remember we get out there. Sure enough, I am buoyant. Okay, I'm floating around in the Dead Sea. And it wasn't long until I remembered who all came on this trip with me, which by the way, Jason, Missy Robertson from Duck Dynasty were on the trip with me. Like I was literally the least of these on this trip. They are super cool and they're really great Christians. Just so you know, if you watch the show or you see the reruns, great people. But there were tons of photographers and videographers on this trip. And all of a sudden the photographers and videographers began to do what photographers and videographers do. They began to take pictures and videos, which made me insecure, okay? I started to get real insecure, all right? Because I was like, yo, my hair, who knows what it looks like? (laughs) And these are going to end up on the gram, all right? These are going on Instagram. What is going on here? So I remember I sat there and I was trying to devise a plan as to how to make sure my hair did not look nappy in these photos. And I decided, thanks girl, I decided... (laughs) I decided that instead of going all the way under, because I didn't want that, I was just going to pat the water with my hand and put a little bit of that dead sea water in my hair. Like just a little bit, right? Not enough. I'm not going to go under, just a little bit. So I patted the water, put it in my hair, and then we're, you know, posing for the pictures. You know, I'm floating. We're doing our stuff. And I was fine for about 10 minutes. And then about 10 minutes after putting that water in my hair, I started doing this. I started blinking profusely, okay? Somebody thought I was, something was wrong with me, okay? Not long after I start blinking, my eyes are sizzling. And quickly after sizzling, they then graduate to a full-on Dante's Inferno, okay? My eyes are on fire. And I could not figure out why my eyes were burning. I'm sitting there trying to figure this out. I did not go under the water. I did what they told me to do. And then I realized... When I had dabbed my hand in that water and put a little bit of that water in my hair, over those 10 minutes, the water ran from my hair, down my forehead, and into my tear duct, and was now burning my eyes. You see, what happened was that little bit of water I tolerated didn't stay where I was tolerating it. And what I wanna tell you this morning is the same is true of the little lies you are tolerating in your heart. The little lies you are tolerating are not going to stay where you want them to stay. In fact, this is exactly what Paul tells us will happen in Galatians chapter five and verse nine. Galatians chapter five and verse nine says this, don't you know that when you allow even a little lie into your heart, it can permeate your entire belief system. Don't you know that even a little lie, if tolerated and allowed to live in your heart, will stay there, it will permeate your entire belief system. And this morning, I feel absolutely urged and provoked by the Spirit of God to begin to call out two lies that I see permeating the church of Jesus Christ today. There are two lies I see 
permeating the belief system of the church. And yes, I do mean our local church here in San Angelo, but I also mean the global church, the global ecclesia, the capital C church, the global body of Christ. There are two lies permeating our belief system. And before I give you them, I have to explain this to you. They are polar opposite ends of the spectrum from one another. They are the two polar extremes. What I'm trying to say is these two lies have nothing in common other than the fact they are both lies. And the reason the church has begun to embrace these lies is because each one is fully embracing of one of the things Jesus said he came to do in Luke 19.10. They are fully embracing of one. But listen to me, in Luke 19.10, Jesus doesn't just give us one thing he came to do. He gives us two. And each lie is only embracing of one of the two things Jesus said he came to do. Luke 19.10 says this, for the son of man, this is Jesus speaking of himself, came to do two things, to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus says, these are the two things I came to do. I came to save, but I didn't just come to save. I came to seek, but I also didn't just come to seek. I came to save. And each of these lies we are going to dissect here for a moment is only embracing of one of these two things. And the first lie that I feel provoked to call out this morning is this, the lie of religion. Come on. The lie of religion. I see it permeating the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason the lie of religion has been allowed to sit in our hearts and permeate our belief system is because it is fully embracing of the fact that in Luke 19.10, Jesus came to save. The lie of religion will tell you all day long, yeah, you better believe it. Jesus came to save. He came to save a wretch like you. He came to save a sinner just like you. And if you die in your sin, you will go to hell, which is true. That is a doctrine being pushed back on right now like never before. Can I tell you boldly right now, Jesus spoke on hell far more than he ever taught on heaven. For some reason, hell has become a cuss word in the church. It's our word. I don't know why all of a sudden the devil has taunted us out of pulling it out of our vocabulary. But religion just wants you to know if you die in your sin without being saved, you'll go to hell. And it completely skips over the fact that Jesus came to seek. Because the power in the seeking is the fact that it's Jesus initiating. What the seeking shows us is that salvation was not your idea. It's God's. You did not convince God to save you. God convinced you to let him. Salvation's not your idea. It does not originate with you. But when we remove the seeking, when we remove the fact that Jesus came to seek, religion then dumps the weight on you to seek out your own salvation. You've got to now seek out your own salvation. You've got to cross all the T's. You got to dot all the I's. You got to keep your religious ducks in a row. Some of you are like, I killed my ducks a long time ago. He's like, you better resurrect them. Because you got to keep them in a row. 
You better do everything just right. You better mind your P's and your Q's because God's got a list. He's checked it twice. He knows you've been naughty. He knows you've not been nice. He's coming to town and he's going to be pissed at what he finds. That's what the lie of religion says. Is God is cosmically frustrated and irritated. And if you will seek him hard enough, long enough, and fervent enough, then he might just find you worthy of salvation. It puts it on you to seek out your own salvation. And you know why this is so powerful? Because one of the telltale signs, one of the telltale signs that someone is stuck in the lie of religion is they will say this. You know what? You know what's, you know what's great about me? You know what's different about me? You know what changed me? I found God. That is a telltale sign of someone who is stuck in the lie of religion. What changed my life is I found God, brother. Now that may make you feel religiously superior, but it is theologically wrong. As if God was the one who was lost. You found him? He misplaced himself? Oh no, I found God. Listen to me, my Bible doesn't just say we were lost in our sin. That's one, one phraseology. The other phrase is, you were dead in your sin. You weren't just a bad person in need of some behavioral modification. As I told you a few weeks ago, you needed soul resurrection. A dead man can't find his way to God. But yet religion will tell you, you got to find God. you got to find God. If you don't find God, you won't get saved. And all of a sudden, your whole life becomes this rat race to find God. When God has found you. And the reason we like the lie of religion is because we want something to boast about. We want another little thing to add to our resume. We want another little badge to put on our sash and show how valuable we are. We want something to boast about. But can I remind you of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9? Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And as if that wasn't enough, I think we could have closed the book there. We'd have gotten the message. He keeps going. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not the reward of God. It's not the payment of God. It's not a prize from God. It's a gift from God. Not by works so that, here it is, no one. I looked it up in the Greek. That's the, that's the, Bible, that's the language the Bible was written in, in this particular moment. That word no one, you know what it actually means? It means no one. <laughs> Real deep. You need a full-on theological degree to understand that one. So that no one can boast. But the lie of religion will let you skip over the seeking and all it wants to emphasize is the fact that you need saving and therefore you need to seek out your own salvation. You gotta work your worried little fingers to the bone to appease a God who's already appeased, who's already satisfied. And it's not because you worked for it. It's because 2,000 years before you ever showed up to work for it, Jesus did it for you. That's the glorious news of this gospel. But the lie of religion will keep you blind to it. You don't have to read your Bible to make God proud of you. You don't have to memorize scripture to make your way into heaven. You don't have to go to church 
to be granted access into the pearly gates. These are lies rely of religion has handed us. It's time that we call it out. But here's the problem. As soon as you go, dang, Kenan, that's good preaching. Thank you. As soon as you go, dang, Kenan, that's some good preaching. I ain't never read Ephesians chapter two before. I've been living in this lie of religion. I am letting go of the lie of religion. Here's what I have found. Here's what I have found happens. Typically, when you let go of one extreme, you instantly gravitate to the other extreme. A pendulum will always swing from one extreme to the other extreme first. And what happens is we let go of the lie of religion to grab on to another lie. And that brings us to our second lie this morning that I see permeating the church, and it's this, the lie of rebellion. The lie of rebellion. And the lie of rebellion is simply this. I'm obviously keeping them alliterated R words, you know, so it's, it's just a little more preachy, a little more palatable. You'll remember when you get home. But in a sense, what the lie of rebellion is, is you go like this. You say, oh, wait, Kenan, if God loves me just as I am, if I ain't got a memorized Bible, I don't got to go to church. I ain't got to give my money to the church, let alone that TV preacher. If I ain't got to do any of that, if God loves me just as I am and will meet me where I am, then I guess I'll just stay here. This is the lie of rebellion. It says, uh, if God loves me just as I am, if God did all the heavy lifting, if God's already done it all, then why would I ever do any of those things. I'll just stay right here. And what the lie of religion in Luke 19.10 wants to skip over is it skips completely over the fact that you needed saving from something. And all it wants to highlight is Jesus, he's seeking you. Hey, Jesus is seeking you, brother. Hey, I saw you like go to church. You realize you don't have to do that. He's seeking you. He wants to be next to you. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus doesn't want to cuddle you in your sin. He wants to set you free of your sin. All of a sudden, we've got this apathetic, weak, anemic Jesus on the other side, the most powerful thing he ever did for us. As if the lion of the tribe of Judah is old and haggard and defanged, therefore he has no power. What we have is a lack of the fear of the Lord. It's a lack of the fear of the Lord. And it's time that it's called out. And I'm not saying that you need to quiver in your boots every time you come around church. I'm not saying that you got to be afraid that God's going to smite you. Your eternal position and ticket has been punched by the blood of Jesus. But here's what I hear all the time. People will come up to me and go, Kenan, um, if I keep sleeping with my girlfriend, am I going to go to hell? And my first question is this. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Yeah. Well, then no. <laughs> okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why does it always have to be about heaven or hell for it to matter to us? Make it plain. That's the question. 
Why does heaven or hell have to always hang in the balance of every decision in order for it to actually have weight with you? Because then all of a sudden heaven or hell's decided and you go, I guess I can just do whatever I want. I guess I can just take the most precious gift God would ever give me and use it as an excuse to live beneath why he gave it to me. It becomes an excuse. Can I tell you this morning? Grace is not an excuse for a life of sin. It's an escape from a life of sin. Grace is not what excuses your behavior. Grace is what allows you to escape from that old mindset, from those old neuro pathways, from those old baggages and chains and things that kept you locked into this habitual sin you've been in for decades. Grace is the only way out. But we've we've bought into this lie that says, oh, if God loves me just as I am, then why in the world would I ever change? It's almost as if the lie of rebellion looks at Jesus telling the story of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. And they read it like this. Yeah, the good shepherd, he had a hundred sheep and one wandered off. And then the good shepherd left that 99 to go after the one. And then when he found it, he just wandered around with it. Like, I guess we're doing this little sheep. Yeah, we can, we can stay out here. There's no need to go back. I just wanted to come and hang out with you. I missed you. That's not the way the story goes. Jesus says, yes, the good shepherd left the 99 to seek the one, but he had a mission in his seeking. He located it, but then guess what? He relocated it. He put that sheep on his shoulders and brought it back into the fold where it belonged. God is not out to just locate you. He's out to relocate you. Yes, God will meet you in the addiction but God wants to relocate you to freedom. Yes, God will meet you in the compromise and in the sin, but he wants to relocate you to righteousness. Yes, God will meet you in your death, but he wants to relocate you to life everlasting. God doesn't just want to locate you. He wants to relocate you. But we've bought in to these two lies and they are permeating the belief system of the church, the lie of religion and the lie of rebellion. This lie that I can just do whatever I want because I'm going to heaven. Can I tell you what Paul says in the book of Titus? He says this, Titus chapter two and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Then he tells us what the grace does. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's real grace preaching. Grace is not just grease that gets you out of the punishment for your sin. That's what we think. Oh, well, the, the, I believe in the salvation of Jesus. My eternal sin, the eternal punishment for my sin has been handled. It's not just about eternal punishment. Yes, that's been handled, but what about the decisions day in and day out in your life? Grace is not a permission to stay ungodly. It's the power to abandon your ungodly ways. Let's keep reading. I wasn't done with that. Throw it back up. (laughs) Teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Listen to this. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It doesn't say, hey, when you get make it to heaven, you're finally going to be self-controlled, upright, 
and godly. It says, no, the grace is for this side of heaven. The grace should affect your behavior this side of heaven. It should all of a sudden make heaven alive in you. And for years, we've heard anybody who waxes of living self-controlled and anyone who waxes of living upright and anyone who preaches about living godly lives, you know what we call them? We call them legalistic. They're not legalistic. You know what they are? They're grace preachers. True grace preaching reminds you that you have that grace so that you can have the power to live self-controlled, upright, and a godly life. But you go, no, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to go to a church that convicts me. I want to coddle my self-esteem. And here's my question. Why are you trying to coddle the esteem of a self God told you to crucify? We go, I don't want to hear anything tough. I don't want to hear that God still cares about my obedience. You've bought into a lie. You're either over here with the lie of religion or you are on the other end of the spectrum with the lie of rebellion. And you know I've got good news for you. I know the answer for your lie. Jesus is the answer to both lies. Because when you fully embrace, not just one of the two things Jesus came to do, but you fully embrace both, you find the antidote for your lie. And can I tell you why Jesus does these two things? It's not because they're just his favorite pastimes, seeking and saving. He does these two things because of who he is. We find out why Jesus does this in John chapter 1 and verse 14. Can we throw it up? John 1 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. This is speaking of Jesus. Glory as of the son from the father. Listen to this language. Full of grace and truth. And for whatever reason, we've got truth people. And we got grace people. And over here on the side of the lie of religion, they go, truth, truth, truth. But over here on the side of rebellion, they go, but grace, grace, grace. And my proclamation to both people stuck in both lies is Jesus is both. He's 100% grace, but he's also 100% truth. You need both. Have you ever had somebody give you the truth, but no grace along with it? You know what you call those people? Mean. <laughs> She's like, yeah, she is mean. <laughs> she told me the truth, but there was no grace. Because gr- truth without grace is mean. Yes. But you know what happens when you get grace, but you get no truth along with it? It's meaningless. What good is it for me to go, hey, by the way, I, I forgive you. And you would go, for what? Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> You're like, oh. The forgiveness is now all of a sudden meaningless because there's no truth along with it. But can I tell you this morning, grace and truth is medicine. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless, but grace and truth is medicine. And it is the medicine prescribed to your lie. I don't care which side of the spectrum you would find yourself in. You need grace and truth. And this morning, we're in a series called Short Stories. Some of you are like, Keenan, you're just preaching a crazy message in this series. No, I'm going to tell you a story. I just had to set it up. <laughs> had to set it up. 
we're in a series called Short Stories where we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And there's one particular parable I am going to teach you this morning that I think both of these lies the lie of religion and the lie of rebellion come into full focus. They are personified in the two main characters in this story. Now, I want to give you a slight disclaimer. If you've grown up around church, as soon as you find out where I'm going, you will be tempted to tune out. But do not allow your over-familiarity with this story to rob you of the revelation that God is giving to free you. Don't just sit there and be like, no worries, going this again. Listen, God has something fresh. And all of a sudden in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about a lost sheep. He tells a story about a lost coin. But then third and finally, he tells a story about a lost son. It really should be the lost sons. Because in this story, I find two stark portraits of both of the lies that the church has begun to believe. Jesus tells a story that there's a, there's a dad and he's got two sons. He's got an older son who's kind of, you know, a goody two-shoes. He's kind of that good all-American kid. He wakes up on time, keeps his room clean, makes straight A's, keep, minds his P's and Q's. I mean, the dad hardly has to look after anything, hardly ever has to correct the kid. But then there's a younger boy. And the younger boy has fallen far from the tree the older brother came from. The younger brother is completely, he's a wild card. I mean, the guy is wild. He'll do anything, anything that feels good in the moment. He is led by his emotions. And Jesus tells the story that this younger brother comes to his dad and says this. Listen, this is wild. Luke 15, verse 12. The younger son told his father, if we could throw it up. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. What is this younger boy saying? He's saying, I want my inheritance now. I want my inheritance. Now, can I break this down for you? Because you're about to see something you didn't see before in light of this sermon. This younger boy is saying, dad, give me what your death is going to provide for me. And now that I've got it, let me live however I want. Is this not a stark portrait? of the lie of rebellion. It says, I got, the, I got what the death of Christ has provided for me, but now I guess I can just live however I want. Obedience doesn't matter. Yieldedness doesn't matter. Consecration doesn't matter. Wrong. But this younger boy says, give me what your death will provide for me and let me live however I want. Stark portrait of the lie of rebellion. The Bible says this, shockingly, the father gives him the inheritance, gives him the inheritance. And the Bible says this, that the son leaves and goes off to a faraway country and he begins to live what's called prodigally. That word prodigal, it means wasteful. And you know you are living in the lie of rebellion when you are wasting what Jesus died to give you. We say, I got the free gift of salvation. I've got the love of God, but I don't give two hoots about what God has to say about my day in and day out practices. I'll let him talk about the spiritual stuff. I'll let him kind of give me insight on how I ought to act as a Christian, but how I ought to act as a mechanic. No, I'll do that my way. How I ought to act as a husband, how I ought to act as a father, how I ought to act online. Yeah, I'll do that my way. 
Jesus doesn't have any say there. God doesn't have any say there. You begin to waste the precious Holy Spirit who is also called the guide. He's called the counselor. He's here to lead you into all truth. You are wasting the precious Holy Spirit living prodigally. The, fa the father says, son, here you go. And the son goes off to a faraway country and he's throwing his money at whatever feels good in the moment. Will ever give him a cheap thrill and another little hit of dopamine. Whatever feels good in the moment. Until all of a sudden, Jesus tells us that the son runs out of money. And at the exact same time that the son runs out of money, Jesus says there's an economic crisis that takes place. Literally, the economy falls apart. The bottom falls out. There's a recession. And all of a sudden, everybody begins to be in want, and this dude has no money, and now he's got to do what every young brat hates to do. He's got to go find something called a J-O-B. He's got to go find a job. So you can imagine he begins to look through the want ads, and the only job available, because the economy is so bad, is a job slopping pigs. And here's the crazy part. The boy takes the job. Some of you are like, Ken, I don't get how that's crazy. You don't understand. This boy in this story is no doubt a Jewish boy. And the book of Leviticus is very clear as to what animals are called kosher and what animals are unclean. And pigs, swine, fall under the unclean animals. Jews were to have nothing to do. They were never to handle swine. They were never to handle pigs. But this young boy takes a job working with them day in and day out. You know what this tells me? In this moment, not only has he turned his back on his dad, he's now turned his back on his God. And this is where the lie will lead you. And it leads you inch by inch by inch until you are abandoning the gift God gave you and the God who gave it to you. This is where he ends up. And he's slopping these pigs and the, the farmer tells him, hey, you can't have any of the pig slop. And it's not because he's a tyrant. It's not because he's not a philanthropist. It's because money is that scarce. He's literally like, I can't afford to pay you and feed you, dude. You can't eat any of the slop. And the Bible says that the son began to be in want so badly that he began to look at this pig slop and thought, man, that looks pretty good. That looks good. This boy, a couple months ago, would have never dreamed he'd be salivating over pig slop. But now, a couple decisions in, he is salivating over something that used to detest him. And can I tell you right now, that's where sin wants to take you. Yes. That's where sin wants to take you until you are beginning to salivate and lust after things you swore up and down you detested. This is why the stuff you watch online has to get gnarlier. It's got to get more racy. It's got to get crazier. It's got to get wilder until animals are involved and young children are involved. And then all of a sudden, the police are knocking at your door, hauling you out of a home. You were just <sighs> engaging in this little something. 
throwing your carcass in jail, separated from your loved ones because perversion knows no end. The devil doesn't tell you where he's taking you, but he always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. And he does it an inch at a time. He's now salivating over something he used to detest. And here's the crazy thing. He decides not to eat it, not because he doesn't want it, but because he's been asked not to eat it. You know what I see here? Here's the crazy thing. Right after this, the Bible says, and then the boy came to his senses. You know what I see here? You know what I see here? That's not even the clappable part. You know what I see here? Thank you, but it's not. You know what I see here? I see a portrait of the power of fasting. The power of fasting, pushing food aside when you've been asked not to eat it. And all of a sudden, on the other side of pushing the plate aside, he came to his senses. Can I tell you, fasting is not an antiquated, outdated biblical idea. It's needed. Jesus says this, some demons can only come out by prayer and fasting. And there's some of you are going around the same mountain. You're struggling with the same devil you've been struggling with since you were 15 because you refuse to fast. You're too good for that. I've got the blood of Jesus. I don't need to fast no more. Wrong. And fasting doesn't make God come to his senses. It makes you come to yours. It's saying, God, I want to sharpen myself to be more in tune with your word. I want my decisions to be easy to lean towards you. I want it to be easy to access your presence. I want it to be easy to obey the heeding of your voice. Fasting changes you. It's not the, it's not the spiritual equivalent of you going on hunger strike. And saying, God, I'm just not going to eat until you give me a blessing. Until, God, I'm just not going to eat until you give me a raise. And, God, I'm not going to eat until you give me my Boaz. That's not what fasting is. That one hit. <laughs> fasting changes you. And he pushes the pig slop aside. And the Bible says he came to his senses. He realizes the error of his ways. Notice what he realizes. He says this to himself. My dad's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat. And here I sit eating pig slop, about to eat pig slop. Here's what I want to call to your attention. I never noticed this before. There's an economic crisis that is taking place that has affected every house but one, the father's house. I'm here to tell you this morning, when it seems like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you can rest assured the answer is still found in the house of God. When politicians, when influencers, when teachers don't know a boy from a girl, you can come into the house of God who says, I made them male and female. There is a truth. There's a truth that transcends current ideology. There's a truth that transcends political figures. There's still bread in the house of God. It's no wonder you're starving out there. And you won't speak up. We won't fight for our children. I'm not saying that we war with malice. I'm not saying that we pick it. I'm not saying we torch places. I'm saying we war in the spirit because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities that try to set themselves up against the knowledge of our God. That's where our battle is won. 
there's more than enough bread in the house of God. All of a sudden, he begins the journey home. And the Bible says this, that he begins to round the property line. And the Bible says this, that while he was still a long way off. Your Bible says that. You got to read your Bible. It's really good. It says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. It wasn't when all of a sudden the son made it home and he cast an eerie shadow over his father as he was pulling up the tomatoes he had planted last season. It wasn't all of a sudden he got a whiff of his cologne and said, my son must be nearby. He was looking for him. The only reason you have eyes to see somebody rounding the property is if you are hoping to see them rounding the property. I'm here to tell you this morning, when you come home, you're not an inconvenience to God. You coming home this morning, and I want to make it very clear, home is not that little blue chair you're sitting in right now. Some of you think I came home by coming to church. I'm not talking about coming to church. Church can't save you. I'm talking about walking yourself to a bloody cross and saying what happened on this bloody cross is enough for me and it can cover all my sins, my transgressions, my wrongdoings, past, present, and future. That's coming home. The father was looking for him. And get this, the Bible says this, that the dad takes off running. In Jewish culture, it was shameful for men to be seen running. It was indignant. What it sent a signal of, what it signified was that you aren't in charge of your schedule because you are evidently behind schedule. Somebody else is your master is what that signifies. But notice, the father does the shameful thing in order to get to the son stuck in shame. Is this not a picture of Jesus? on the cross that he bore our sin and our shame having none of his own <sighs> he risked his reputation on you is what I'm trying to say and the father gets to the son the son has this pathetic speech he tries to get it out and the dad says shut up and he hugs him and kisses him. He begins to just completely smother him. And then he yells back at the house, grab a robe, grab a ring, grab some sandals, call the DJ, kill the calf. We're going to have a dance party. This is literally what the dad says. He throws a party. And many of us in many sermons, the story then fades to black, but it doesn't. All of a sudden, the dad and the, the son are off on the dance floor. And the older boy hears them dancing as he's outside working. All of a sudden, the older son just hears, he's like, what? What's going on in there? We're having a regular old hoedown. And he begins to tap one of the servants. He says, hey, what's going on in the barn? He said, oh, you don't know? Your brother came home and your dad has thrown a party for him. And rather than this brother rejoicing for joy, throwing his dancing shoes on and getting on that dance floor, he begins to wear out the field he is in by pacing back and forth, absolutely ticked out of his mind. He is completely upset. He's all, you can imagine he's making unintelligible noises like you do when you're upset. Just, you know, you just say, you don't even know what to say. That's how upset he is. He's just out there and he's making such a commotion. Listen to me, the dad hears him. All the way in the dance party, the dad heard the son making a commotion. And get this, the father left the porch to go to the younger son, but the father also leaves the party to go to the older son. 
I don't care which lie you are steeped in, God will come to you. I don't care which end of the spectrum, if you are stuck in the lie of rebellion or you are stuck in the lie of religion, thinking you've got to work for your favor, you've got to work for the approval of God, you've got to work for a relationship with God, God will leave the party or the porch any day of the week. Amen. And the father gets out there and the son says this to the, to the dad, Luke, 25, Luke 15, 25 or 29, excuse me, he says this. But he answered his father, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Notice the language this son uses. He's a son, but notice what he says. I've been slaving. I've been slaving. Because that's what the lie of religion does. It demotes you from being a son to being a slave. All this time, I've been slaving for you, Dad. I wake up at the butt crack of dawn, and I'm working your field uh, by the sweat of my brow. I've never seen any of that money. I've never even had as much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. I'm slaving for you. And notice, this is crazy. This wrecked me. Notice the father's response. Luke 15, 31 says this. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Get this. And everything I have is yours. He doesn't say, son, you're always with me. And everything I have will be yours. If you work a couple more years, work a little harder, keep waking up at dawn, go out there and work till the noonday sun is super hot and scorching your back, then one day it'll all be yours. He says, son, 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 you are under, you are misunderstanding what is going on here. It already is yours. And my question to you today is, are you slaving for something that already belongs to you? That's where the lie of religion will lead you, slaving for something that has already, here's a biblical word, been imputed to you. Working for a salvation that's already been given. Working to appease a God who's already been appeased. Working to gain a heavenly state that already has your name on it. Are you working for something that's already been given? And this morning, I don't know which lie has permeated your heart, but I have a hunch that one, if not both at times, have permeated. And right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to give a moment of privacy and concentration because here's how the story ends. Jesus doesn't tell us what this older boy does. He doesn't tell us, oh, and then the older brother came into the party. He lets the story fade to black there. And you know why? I think it's to give the listener an opportunity to decide what they would have done. Would you drop your lie? We don't know if the older brother did, but we can find out if you will. And right now I wanna give you an opportunity to, if, if you would say, Kenan, I have been stuck in the lie of religion. I've been working to appease a God who's already been appeased by the blood of Jesus. I've been trying to gain something that's already been purely gifted to me. And you say, Kenan, I'm ready to let go of my lie. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. And you would say, Kenan, I've been in the lie of rebellion. I have been using the grace of God as an excuse for my sin.
an excuse to keep partying, an excuse to keep messaging her, an excuse to keep winding down at the end of the day with an entire bottle of Jack. I've been using it as an excuse rather than an escape. And if you would say, Kenan, I'm ready to let go of my lie and let the grace of God teach me to say no to ungodliness. If you find yourself in one of those categories, you'd say, Kenan, I need Jesus afresh and anew. Would you raise your hand now? And I'm gonna pray for you right now. Hands going up all over this auditorium. Praise God. Come on, don't miss this moment. If that's you, you know I'm steeped in this lie. I've been believing one of the lies. I've been treating the grace of God like it doesn't exist or I've been treating the grace of God like it's a given. You would say, Kenan, I need this message. Father, I thank you right now for every hand that's raised to heaven because that hand represents a heart that has just said yes to you afresh and anew. God, I break the back of the attack of the enemy. Lord, I thank you. I demolish these lies. The lie of religion, your back is broken. The lie of rebellion, your back is broken. We will leave here sons and daughters of the most high God. Lord, I thank you that right now you are seeking and saving the lost now, even as I speak. You are seeking and saving them with grace and truth. And I thank you right now that they can leave with their head held high, not confident in their own goodness, but confident in yours. And I thank you for it now. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, come on. Amen. Amen. Can we put our hands together for what Jesus did this morning? Come on. Thank you for listening to this message from Celebration Church. You can keep up with all that God is doing here at Celebration by following us on Facebook and Instagram.